in this series, Live Like Jesus. And uh, Quentin said we're in week seven, and we are. We're on word five. The, the last four weeks, we've explored four different words that give us insight into what it means to live like Jesus. And today, we're going to take a look at our fifth word, which is sanctify. Now, listen to what Jesus prays in John 17, verses 16 and following. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. Talking about the disciples. And he's talking about us. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now the other four words that we've taken a look at so far are reveal, speak, pray, and protect. Words that are easily understood and that we use on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty convinced that most of you have stayed awake long enough to understand those four and could tell me how those apply to living like Jesus. For instance, we must reveal him, speak for him, pray to him, and protect like him. So easy words to understand and apply. <laughs> Today's word however, does not fit that simple structure. Sanctify is a lofty spiritual concept that I'm guessing you haven't uttered the word in casual conversation for years, if ever. As a matter of fact, it's one of those $20 highfalutin religious words that most of us have no idea what it means, even if the winning Jeopardy answer was on the line. So, what does the verb sanctify or the noun sanctification really mean? Simply put, it means to make holy. When the apostle Peter writes his first letter to the ancient church, he opens with a reference to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And then 14 verses later, he writes this. But just as he who is called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written... Be holy because I am holy. That's God speaking there. Be holy to us because I, God, am holy. Now, be honest with me. We do not find the word holy or holiness to be something, well, exciting. When we think of the word holy, we oftentimes get this kind of an image, I think, in mind. <laughs> am I right? Okay, sort of that holier-than-thou spirit, that judgmental, critical kind of spirit. But I'm here to tell you this morning that holier-than-thou and holy are two separate concepts. The one we want to avoid at all costs, the other we want to embrace at any cost. In a word, holy simply means separated. Separated from worldly commitment to godly commitment. Separated from harmful practices to spiritually healthy practices. Separated from selfishness to godliness. Holiness doesn't mean being perfect. It means trusting a perfect God. Holiness isn't about where a person is, but where he or she is headed. Holiness, you see, is directional. It's toward tomorrow, not yesterday. It's toward God not the world. You see, when you're facing the sun, the light of the sun shines on your face. Your face is not hidden in the shadows. That's directional. 
We face God, so our actions, thoughts, and intentions ought to be a reflection of him. And when we do reflect him, the world can see him clearly. That's why consistency is so important when it comes to growing in holiness. Hypocrisy certainly isn't limited to the church, folks. I understand that. But somehow, somehow a hypocritical spirit is more damaging in the church because of what the church professes and what the church stands for. God calls us not to live double standard lives because it's repelling. When I'm inconsistent, when I'm hypocritical, when you are, it, it repels people. It doesn't draw them to the Lord. And our goal is to live like Jesus, to draw people to him. Now, God grants us salvation at the point of our conversion. When we become a Christian, we are saved. We're not partially saved. We're not almost saved. We are saved. He has granted us salvation. But sanctification, this process of separation, is the work of the Holy Spirit that begins when we come to Christ and never ends through the rest of our lives. We will be in the process of being sanctified until we draw our last breath because in this world, I don't know about you, but I know it's true in my life, I will battle temptation to the very last moment. When we choose to acknowledge Jesus, the process begins. So, let me ask you this. Has God designed any experience that captures the beginning of this sanctified process, this process of being separated from the world to being loved and devoted to God? Well, I believe he does. And, and it has to do with this response we call baptism. Now, now, let me say something real quick, all right? I'm going to throw this one in. The, the, we, we are talking about this being baptism day. I, I want you to understand and understand it clearly. That baptism is available any Sunday, as you know, any time of the week, as I hope you know, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, even in the night. There is no point in time when we are not ready to baptize you. So why a baptism Sunday? Because sometimes when we know what the right thing is to do, we, we procrastinate. And we need a target. We need, we need a goal to shoot for. That's what today is all about. It gives us the opportunity to shoot for this goal. Throughout scriptures, there is something about this picture of passing through the water that holds great significance in God's story. It's often the image of separation from spiritual slavery to spiritual freedom, from the incomplete to the complete, from unholy to holy. And while there are no baptisms in the Old Testament, folks, all throughout his word, God is preparing for us this significance of this rite of passage through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want you to go back with me into the Old Testament for just a moment and see how God lays the groundwork for such a glorious moment in time. In the opening verses of the creation account in Genesis, we read this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then a few verses later, we read this. So God made the expanse and, did you catch it? Separated. 
separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry ground appear. And in the creation story, once the dry ground appears and the waters have been separated, life explodes. It's as if God was saying that through the water comes new life. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He said, creation itself, you might say, began with a baptism. Six chapters later, God commands Noah to build an ark for the saving of his family and a smattering of the animal kingdom. Now, I've often wondered, why did God choose that? I mean, there were dozens of ways that God could have brought judgment upon the world and and started afresh. I mean, uh, he could have destroyed everything with a hurricane-force wind or wiped out everything with a global virus, or swept across the globe with a raging fire that consumed everything in its path, or eliminated everything with a meteor strike. And yet, and yet when God wanted to bring judgment and start afresh, he chose a flood. The waters of the flood separated, sanctified, made holy. The waters of the flood separated good from evil, life from death. It's as if God was saying that through the water comes a cleansing, a new birth, a fresh start. As a matter of fact, Peter uses Noah and the flood as a picture of baptism. In Exodus, Moses and the recently released Israelites find themselves up against the Red Sea. They've camped out at Pi-ha-haroth, free at last from their slavery, so they thought. So here they are, Red Sea in front of them, mountains on either side, the valley that they had just come through, and lo and behold, the Egyptians changed their mind, and the whole Egyptian army is in pursuit of the Israelites to bring them back to a life of slavery, and they can't move. They can't walk into the sea. The sea, they will drown. They can't climb the mountains. And here comes the army. Moses holds the staff out over the Red Sea. The waters part the Israelites, make it across on dry land. And when the Egyptian army enters into the Red Sea, the walls of water collapse and the, and the e- Egyptian army drowns. And once on the other side of the Red Sea, the Israelites then know that they are free from the slavery of 400 years under Egyptian rule. It's as if God was saying, through the water comes true freedom. Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks of the Israelites being symbolically baptized into Moses as they passed through the sea and the cloud of God's presence was above them. Beautiful picture. In the book of Joshua, the Israelites finished their 40 years of wandering and prepared to move into the promised land, their new home. And just like 40 years before, they are stumped by the Jordan River at flood stage. And God does the very same thing like bookends on their 40 years of wandering. The waters of the Jordan flow backwards up to, the, to another town. And the Israelites are able to cross over the Jordan into the promised land once and for all. They were home. It's as if God was saying that through the water, through the water comes the promise of home. You know what it's like to thumb through an old photo album and the memories come flooding back. I am convinced that when John the baptizer started baptizing people at the Jordan River, not another river, but the Jordan River, 
that the Israelites did not lose the significance of this new life, new home, this fresh start picture because that's where they had crossed over from their time of wandering and their time of aimlessness into a home and into a promise. This symbolism is amazing. It captures the rebirth through the floodwaters, the freedom of the exodus, the hope of God's eternal promised land, and even creation itself. And what a beautiful pageant is spelled out in these pictures. And when we are baptized, we join that same pageant of the ages. This is no small moment in time. This is not some mere ritual that we do. It is our personal participation in the eternal story that began with creation itself. Again, N.T. Wright says, that is why from very early on, Christian baptism was seen as the mode of entry into the Christian family and why it was associated with the idea of being born again. And so it is my hope and my prayer this morning that if you've never been baptized, for whatever the reason, that today you will make a commitment to honor the Lord's command and to follow the Lord's own example, to be baptized into Christ. Now, the Greek word that we translate into our English Bibles as baptize means to dip, plunge, or immerse. Folks, it was not a religious word. This was a word that the, the Greek culture used to describe a sinking ship as it was filled with water and settled into a watery grave. It was a word that they used to describe a garment being immersed into a vat of dye. The dye permeated every fiber of the fabric that changed the garment's color once and for all. What great images to give us insight into the significance of being baptized into Christ. We are filled with him through this watery grave. We are permeated by him so that every fiber of our being takes on his image for all to see. But baptism's significance is even more poignant than that. The act of baptism tells and retells the very story of the ages, the greatest story ever. Now, there are a lot of passages on baptism, but my favorite for many years has been Romans chapter 6. And Paul reminds those who were about ready to abuse the grace of God. He says, do you not know do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was what? Crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. You know the picture. You know, somebody walks in, they've never seen a baptism, how strange it must look. But we know, and we cheer, and we are celebrating with the person who goes down into the water and comes up soaking wet, because in that moment, the pageant plays out before us. Eyes closed, ears cease to hear, the breath is held 
The body goes under, it is no longer vertical, it is horizontal, the arms come over the chest, it's the picture of a corpse buried in a watery grave, raised again, and new life enters. The eyes open, they begin to move, they begin to smile, they begin to laugh, they begin to breathe a death, a burial, a resurrection. How profound is our God that he gave us so something so simple and yet so profound to tell over and over and over again the greatest story ever, the moment that changed all of our eternity, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something incredible happened when you became a Christian. You probably didn't feel it. I didn't feel it. But it happened. We died. We died to our sin. And we died to our allegiance to the things of this world. And you know, when somebody dies, there's a burial. So what does it mean to die to our sin? It means to start doing the right thing, the godly thing. It means that God's way becomes a priority in our life. It means that we strive to avoid the people, things, and places that tempt us most. It means that we've changed direction. We're not walking toward the light instead of the darkness. It means that sin no longer has power or dominance in our lives. And isn't that what sanctification is all about? Being separated from the things of this world to the things of God. When a U.S. president issues a pardon, folks, whether the person is guilty or, or innocent, when the president issues a pardon, it's, well, it changes that person's relationship to the law of our country forever. The charges that were at one time leveled on them, the charges that incarcerated them, no longer hold any power. When the president says, you are free, you are free. The Apostle Paul says that when we are baptized, we crucify the old life and our relationship to sin is buried once and for all. Baptism doesn't make us sinless, but it certainly changes our standing with the law of God. The old charges are gone forever, pardoned by the blood of Christ. Now, do not think of baptism as something you do, that you have earned something by being baptized, that it's meritorious or, or something of that nature. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Baptism is completely passive. It is done to you. You cannot do it yourself. You can only submit to it. In like fashion, crucifixion's the same way. You couldn't crucify yourself. It had to be done to you. In Romans, Paul uses the word that we are united with Christ in his death. It is a word that is used of a branch that is grafted into another tree. We become one with him in his death as he submitted to death. So we willfully surrender our lives, die to sin. We don't need his original cross to be identified with his death. I can do that by an acclamation of him as Lord and Savior. But it's that moment of baptism that really ties the two together. I can't baptize myself. It is a passive act. 
I cannot cleanse myself of my sin. Only God can wash away my sin through the blood of Christ. Baptism is something we submit to or surrender to because it captures the very essence of us giving our lives to Jesus Christ. It is an act of submission and ultimate surrender. We have nothing to boast about except Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is not to suggest that salvation is found in the act of or the water of baptism. There's nothing magical. This is not holy water over here. And it's not as if the deed itself is something extra powerful that, you know, if you could just get people in the water and baptize them, it'd be okay. Doing something like that against a person's will would have no effect whatsoever. And we don't have a bottle of extra potent divine joy that we squirt into the water. Uh, we, we don't have extra strength spiritual tide that we use in the water to scrub away your sins. Our slogan is not once baptized, you'll be sanitized. That's not our slogan. It is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that makes possible the forgiveness of our sin. But it is. It is in this act, this one-time act of baptism where we identify with that historical moment. In the book of Acts, the church's history book, baptism always followed immediately on the heels of someone's profession of faith and acceptance of Christ. I believe our biggest struggle is always with the submission part. If you're like me, you want to be in charge of your life. But in baptism, that's not possible. It's just the opposite picture. A few times in my life, I've had surgery. Each procedure required two things, a competent surgeon and my submission. You see, there's a moment. If you've had surgery, you know the moment I'm talking about. There's a moment right before you fade into oblivion that you understand perhaps better than any other time in your life, total surrender. Your life, your health, your being is in the hands of someone else. Everything is about to happen, good or bad, is completely out of your control. Many surgeries are, are life-saving, but you have to submit to the surgery in order to be saved from whatever disease or illness or it is. With baptism, it is a consistent, one-size-fits-all act of submission in which anyone and everyone can participate that captures for us that when I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, it, it is his sacrifice that makes all the difference. So let me sum it up this way. In baptism, we are reborn, chosen, loved, washed, adopted, set free, crucified, and promised an eternal home. We are identified as God's own, and the Spirit begins our lifelong process of sanctification. So we come to the question, should I be baptized into Christ? Absolutely. And it should be done with enthusiasm and excitement, not with the roll of an eyes or a, okay, if I have to, I'll do it kind of attitude. We're looking for folks with the attitude of Tigger, not Eeyore, if you know the Winnie the Pooh characters. It should be one of the most joyous, exciting moments of your spiritual journey. You see, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you want to follow him and surrender your life to him, but you haven't been baptized, then I'm convinced God wants you to do that. And there's no time like the present. It's easy. We've made it so convenient. My grandparents used to tell me stories about 
breaking the ice on the farm ponds to baptize people in the winter. <laughs> There's no ice in this body of water over here. And of course, there are the proverbial stories of people being caught out of the preacher's hands and swept down the stream when they were being baptized. We got ends on both of the baptistry here. You're not going to be swept anywhere. You see, we, we make the whole issue so much harder than it is. We ask questions that I don't think are important questions. Well, is baptism necessary for salvation? Or what if a person is stuck in the desert and there's no water to be baptized? Or you tell me, at what moment is a person actually saved? Well, unless we understand the mind and the heart of God, or the one who believes, I, I, think, these, I think these questions only complicate the matter. Think of it like this. You're stuck on the third floor of a burning building, and your only escape is through the window. Someone calls 911 about the fire. The dispatcher notifies the station. The fire trucks rush to the scene. A crew hoists the ladder to the window while a firefighter scampers up the ladder to help you out of the window. Who saved you? At what point were you saved? Who cares? Because you see, at that moment, you're just thrilled to death to be saved and not lost. You'll get hung up on the details. And actually, really, everyone, every moment was a part of it. Uh, you, you, the dispatcher, the person who called 911, the driver of the fire truck, the crew who hoisted the ladder, the firefighter who came up the ladder, all of that. You leave out one part of that, and you, and you, and you perish in the fire. You see, it all fits together. We're asking the wrong question. The right question to ask is, when? When can I be baptized? Anytime. And there's no time like the present. When the Ethiopian in, in the chariot, along with Philip, came to a body of water, the, the Ethiopian said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip says, oh, you can. And they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And the Ethiopian went on his way rejoicing. And if nothing else compels you, Jesus did it. Jesus came to John, the baptizer, and he said, John, baptize me. And John said, no, no, no. It should be the other way around. Jesus said, no, do this. It is the right thing to do. And if Jesus, who knew no sin, said it's the right thing to do, who are we not to follow such a divine example? Here's something else that I love about the act of baptism. It separates us from all man-made barriers it breaks down the man-made class systems that we always want to impose. Baptism levels the playing field. Bob Russell wrote this. He said, baptism is the great equalizer. No matter who you are, how successful you are, or who you know, all have to go under the waters alike. It is a humbling act. Your high-priced your high hairdo will be destroyed, but I'm here to tell you, your hair will never look better. The high and the mighty as well as the lowly all come to Christ in the same humbling act. Kings and paupers are all one in baptism. And I guarantee you it'll be one of the more memorable moments of your life, if not the most. I remember it as if it were yesterday. I was 12 years old. It was April the 2nd, 1967. And in my mind's eye, I see the landscape painted on the wall behind the baptistry. The scalloped 
curtain that was raised right before the baptism took place and lowered again right after the person came up out of the water. I remember the somewhat less than stable wooden steps that led down into the baptistry. All that's imprinted in my memory. It is a scene that is the most indelible, the foremost life-changing moment of my 64 years. I can still hear in my memory the splashing sound of the water as I came down into it. My white cotton robe was soaked to the bone. I took a deep breath and I felt cleaner on the inside than I had ever felt before. I wear a wedding ring on my left hand on the fourth finger because it is a symbol to everybody of another event that I remember as if it were yesterday. It was June the 4th, 1977, and Elsie and I pledged our lives together. I wear that ring with pride and with joy. It stays on my fingers through the ups and the downs over the years. It's worn with time. It's got a couple little scratches and dents on it, but I wouldn't trade those for anything. Because, you see, I consider it a privilege to wear the ring and a privilege to be married to her we did that wedding once, and it started us on a journey where the two of us have been united together ever since. That's this picture of baptism. We are baptized once and declare our commitment to Christ, and it is a constant reminder that he is with us through the ups and the downs of life. Max Licato put it this way. He said, just as a wedding celebrates the fusion of two hearts, baptism celebrates the union of the sinner with the Savior. There, there just is no reason for you not to do it. Don't put it off any longer. That's what today is all about. It's to give you this goal, this target to shoot for. While we're singing, you come down. We're going to get you ready. We're going to be baptizing you while we're still singing. Don't be afraid of the water. The people I've baptized over the years that put it off for so long because they were afraid of the water said afterwards, without exception, I don't know what I was afraid of. There was nothing to it. Well, I don't want to inconvenience my family. You're not going to inconvenience your family. They're going to love waiting for you. They're going to gather right up here so they can see you in this moment of moments. Well, I didn't come prepared. Yeah, you did. We've got towels and robes and everything back here. You don't need anything else. We've even got trash bags to put on the car seats of your car so you won't get it wet going home. So what's your excuse? This is your time right now. The separation the sanctification can begin right now if you'll surrender to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Come, come while we stand and sing. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.